Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Great to have you with us this week. And uh, we thank Austin Elmore, our producer engineer this week. We thank the Believe Network for believing in the show. We thank you for joining us each and every week. You heard part one with Anthony Munoz, his upbringing in Ontario, California. If you missed part one and you're just jumping to part two, please go back and listen to part one. Not that you have to listen to one before the other, but part one, talking about his upbringing in Ontario, California, the injuries he went through at USC, not even thinking he was going to get drafted in the NFL. He's a number three pick in the 1980 draft by the Bengals and goes on to become, many believe, the greatest offensive lineman in the history of the NFL. This week, we talk more about his pro career and what he has done since retiring from the game. All that and more next. You're dialed in with Tom Brenneman. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services, including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist. Call one 844 Y-E-S-C-H-N-K. Visiting with Anthony Munoz, you come in after being the number three overall pick in 1980. You sign the day before camp, and you become the starter right from basically the get-go. Correct me if I'm wrong there. What did you notice? You know, guys talk about the speed of the game and, you know, all this kind of thing. But when you get out there on the field, and let's be honest about it, I mean, you were practicing, although you were hurt a lot your last two years. When you did practice at USC, you were practicing against seven or eight or nine guys that ended up in the NFL every single day anyway. (laughs) But when you get to to the pros and you get out there and and the, the team used to train up and win, Wilmington, Ohio, north of Cincinnati. What's the first thing you noticed about the pro game? Well, first of all, Tom, you know, the thing that my guys at USC used to kid me about was the one thing I did have going for me, even though I missed the majority of my games, is I went through every summer camp at SC, so that's four camps. I went through every spring practice. So even though I was hurt during the season, so I did have that practice experience. I had a lot of reps in practice. I just didn't have the game reps. So I learned how to practice. When I got to the NFL, at USC, for my first, my rookie, my freshman year, the guy I practiced against every year was the fifth pick in the draft that year, defensive end Gary Jeter to the Giants. We had Rod Martin on that side who played, I think, 13 years for the Raiders. Clay Matthews, senior. We had David. So I was, like you said, I it was game day every day at practice. And Saturday for me was not easy, but it was a little easier yeah. going into my college games. So I learned how to practice. But here now, in college, maybe Notre Dame, maybe UCLA, maybe out of the 11, 12 games, maybe three or four really top-notch defensive ends. Well, 
at practice my rookie year, even though they were, you know, weren't on the team yet, these guys are pretty good. They're the best. And uh, so the, it was 16 games and it was 16 defensive ends that I had to make sure I was on top of my game. It wasn't like, okay, this week I have this guy. Mm-hmm. I got a couple of okay guys the next couple, especially at left tackle. You know, I, I did. I earned the job my third day in camp. And, um, and so that was, okay, I got that taken care of. Now I got to accelerate and turn the volume up on my, my intensity, my preparation. But, Tom, that was the thing. I mean, and for me, you know, the four preseason games, 16 regular season games, I faced Leroy Selman twice in my first five weeks. <laughs> One preseason game and then a season opener. It was like, okay, so this is what's, what it's like facing the best in the NFL. And I'm thinking, if I can survive this guy, I, I could. But, yeah, so, you know, Leroy Selman and Sherman White and, you know, Alzado and, you know, Joe Klecko. And I'm thinking, then you got these linebackers. And so it was one of these things that you just knew that every week you had to be – you had to play your best game and the intensity. And, you know, for me, I played one game and two series that senior year because I got hurt the second time we had the ball that first game. And I played the entire Rose Bowl. I mean, now I'm playing – and we, we used to play at least a half preseason games. I mean, it wasn't this not play until week three and then you might play a couple of series. I mean, they had us playing at least a half, maybe some in the third quarter. So I'm talking, you know, a, a month of camp full pads and I'm talking four regular or preseason games and 16 regular season games, 20 games. I think that might've been what I played in four years. At right. SC. And right. And that's, that's a long season. So you had to kind of, you know, recuperate, you know, go into that reserve tank, which I'm thankful that my workouts were such that I did have a reserve tank. Cause I, I ran like crazy in the off season. I started that like my junior at SC because of the operation. I ran a lot. I lifted a lot. So that helped me with the long season. But, uh, yeah, it was one of those things where I would watch tape. Like, let's put Fred, Fred Dean, for instance. Yeah. You know, a lot of the games I was playing my rookie year, the team had played the previous year, so we had tape on guys. So I'm watching Fred Dean. He's playing for the Chargers. I'm thinking, this guy can't be that fast. This, this tape has to be in a higher speed. <laughs> I mean, he's out there. He comes across the line of scrimmage. The running back goes to the right, and he runs across, and he runs them down. He's 245, 250, and he looks as strong as a 285-pounder. I'm thinking, ah, sure enough, we play the Chargers. He is that fast. He right. is that strong. So Fred Dean, Hall of Famer. Leroy Selman, Hall of Famer. You know, so it's one of those things where you learn quickly that you've got to just be laser focused, laser prepared. And uh, and I give USC a lot of credit for that sure. because of the preparation and the way we train there at USC and how we – competed. I mean, we competed like crazy, and that's what I had to do in the NFL. Year two, you get to the Super Bowl. It's played in Detroit, Michigan. Kenny Anderson's a quarterback. He winds up being the uh, league's MVP that year. You play the 49ers. Um, I mean, here you are, this kid from Ontario, California, who's first love with baseball, and now you're, 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 you're being announced and introduced as a starter in the Super Bowl. It's like, Wow. So first of all, you know, finally you get drafted. You know, now I come more of a become more of a baseball fan than really thinking, oh, maybe I should have played baseball. No, that's all gone now. Now I'm like, I can't believe it. I'm coming to Cincinnati and I'm getting to watch the Big Red Machine and getting to, I'm you know getting introduced to Johnny Bench and Tony Perez. But now baseball football is it. So when I get when I sign, I go to my rookie camp. Now 
the team goals. You know, you know, make the team, get into the playoffs, get to the Super Bowl. And the fact that this Bengals team had been four and twelve two years before Forrest got there, my rookie year we were six and ten. But I saw a lot of improvement. You know, six, ten losses. I had, I think, two losses in four years at SC. <laughs> right, two or right, three right, losses. Right. And now we got ten. But, but Tom, we could have very easily have been ten and six that rookie year. We lost some games late in the, in the game, but I saw a lot of improvement. So now we go into that second year. I don't, I wouldn't think in Super Bowl, but I'm thinking we can be pretty good. And especially halfway through this, they were five and two. We go down to New Orleans and they just spanked us. I mean, so now we're five and three. We're okay, you know, a lot better than the previous year. And uh, Forrest Gregg, man, just rips into us because we just got whipped down in New Orleans. And uh, they weren't that good, but they whipped us. So what really happened that month of November that year, we go 5-0 and in November. And, Tom, games were over by middle of the third quarter, late third quarter. I mean, we're playing really good teams. All of a sudden we go from being 5-3 and to 10-3. and and we're looking playoffs right in the eyes. I'm thinking, my God, this team has come together. But then we, you know, we win our first playoff game, and then we got that that little cool game. Yeah, that, oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that one was a little chilly. You know, remember yeah, I, I, I remember and, uh, it well. <laughs> yeah, and you know, so we win that. We're going, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, second year in the league, and we're going to the Super Bowl. And uh, you know, so going. I mean, that whole week that we're at home before we travel, it's just like. You know, it's hard to sink in because, I mean, I was used to playing in Rose Bowls or going to Rose Bowls, playing in one, and now you're in the NFL, and your ultimate goal is to get in the Super Bowl. In my second year in the league, we're going to Pontiac, Michigan to play in the Super Bowl. And But, but you're right. You run out, and when you're being introduced, man, it's like, you know, you're kind of a little overwhelmed until, okay, then the ball's kicked off sure. and you get all over that, and then you got to play. But, man, it was a week before you're at home. Every media – it's not as big as now, but a lot of the media that they're coming to town and interviewing you, then you have your media day at, you know, Pontiac during the week. And so the focus is just on two teams now. And uh, it was pretty exciting and, and cr- crazy. You know, like a lot of guys, you play in one. I looked around, I said, man, we got the talent to, to make a run. Sure. And it's not a, another eight years until we get there. But yeah, so it was um, unbelievable experience at first. And the guys I played with, I mean, Kenny Anderson, I mean, should be in the Hall of Fame, and you know, Max Montoya and Dave Lapham, and you know, on the defense, Jim LeClaire, Reggie Williams, Ross Browner. I mean, that's just some great guys that you know that just worked their tails off and really transformed them, themselves as players and and as a team. We just turned it around, and all of a sudden, going from six and ten to twelve and four, home field advantage, and going to the Super Bowl was just amazing. Two years later. Um... There's a coaching change. Forrest Gregg is out. Sam Weish is in. This guy comes as a head coach from Indiana, if I'm not mistaken. He comes walking in the right. door, and and you know, <laughs> they you know, he got the nickname later in life, and affectionately, I think for a lot of people, <laughs> Wacky Weish and all stuff. And, and and it's not too long, Anthony, before you guys are doing this this no huddle offense. Do you did you remember? I mean, was there a meeting where he said, "Hey, I'm thinking about doing this"? Did he ask you, "What do you think about this?" How did that all kind of come together? 
You know, it's amazing because, uh, you know, a lot of times you, you know of coaches, and I never forget, Didi and I and the kids were in California visiting family. We jump on a plane. We had to fly through Dallas, and there's a gentleman who's standing, and he kept looking at me, and it's he, one of those faces where you you know you don't know the guy, but he looks familiar, and we get in the plane, and he sits right across the aisle from me, and after a while, he, he leans over. He goes, you're Anthony Munoz, aren't you? I said, yeah. He goes, I'm your new head coach, Sam Weiss. So I you got to be kidding. Home. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I met him. We're flying from Dallas to Cincinnati, and that's when I first met him. And then, uh, of course, you know, his first meeting with the team, he's doing these rope tricks. As you know, he's a guy that's doing all the magic tricks. Sure. Uh, but, no, it was one of those things where, for, to me, he's he's just a, a offensive genius. I'm just con- – I'm convinced that Sam White's. I mean, he was, and that's just stuff we just started doing. I mean, he just started implementing this. We're doing this. And then we started, you know, coding words. And, you know, a lot of people thought it was a, a hurry up offense, but it was really called an attack offense because we had three or four different huddles. We had the regular huddle, we had the sugar huddle, which we would huddle up like halfway back. Then we had the walk by huddle, which we'll run a play and we're kind of getting off the ground and Boomer walk around just calling the play. And then, you know, we had like each play was coded three or four ways. You know, you have your regular terminology that most people have, you know, your, you have your formation, your, mm-hmm. your play, your snap count. But we had coded words like, you know, 1617 was a, a certain group of words. 1819 was another group of words. Our snap count wasn't necessarily numbering, but we could use words to, to call the snap count. We, we had things like if we busted a play, we, going into that game, we had solo, duo, or trio. We had three plays, one play for each one of those words. And you'll know, you, run a, you bust a play for 60 yards, and the defense is usually pretty discombobulated trying to figure out what to do. We would run right to the line of scrimmage, and on the way to the line of scrimmage, Boomer would either call solo, duo, or trio. And we knew with whatever word he called, we knew the formation, the play, and the snap count. And it wasn't because it was solo. It wasn't it's on one or the duo, the snap counts two. We had a snap count designated. So people thought we would just get to the line and run a play just to get five yards because they had too many guys on the field. Now, we had a designated play called or our set alert we're in the huddle boomers looking to sam to get the play we're looking at the defense the other sideline to see if they're trying to substitute if we see they are boomer we go, as a group we say set alert set alert we get to the line of scrimmage set alert snap count we run a play people thought we just would run a play to get five yards because that no we had a designated play either pass play or run play that we'd run we're going to bust it or we're going to get five yards because they have too many guys on the field. I mean, so every Monday we would come up with new code words, new, and it was just Sam, Bruce Coslett and Boomer. And at times they would let us have a little input, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so we would, you know, it was, you know, sometimes it's strong, right. You know, 27 M on two. other times it might be, you know, the boss, you know, we would use words like if it's a, a boss, you know, back on strong safety is a, is a 28 boss. We might do Pirate, Bruce, you know, Bruce Springsteen's the boss. We might do Paul, he's the boss. At the time, W is the boss, whoever the president, we would use those words as the boss, you know, or, or PB. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, yeah, so we would have group words like, you know, 18 might be ocean terms like pirate, ship, sailor. 16, 17 might be Western words like trigger, uh, you know, stuff like that. Sure. Uh, you know, that is so fascinating. Would, it's fascinating. Uh, it, and it was fun because Boomer was amazing. And you talk about holding guys accountable. We as an offense, 
better study because we would we would know exactly if Boomer called the play and we'd come to the line of scrimmage, we were so versed that we could look and knew right away, we're not going to that play, and Boomer would make the call. If myself and my left guard had a call to change the blocking scheme, there's times we didn't even make the call. We just looked at each other, wink, and said we knew we got to change the blocking scheme because we're – so we were all on the same page. Our practices, Tom, were like – like fast break basketball. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like up tempo. Now that was fast. We'd try to run, and so cardio that was great. But then it it forced you to really be sharp mentally. So Sam was a, a genius. I mean, he would he wouldn't sleep at night. There was times where Paul Brown would say, "You have to go home and sleep. You you can't be productive if you sleep at the office." You know, that's the thing. Most coaches say, well, I sleep at the office. We stay there until, you know, people right, tie right, themselves right. on that. Paul Brown wanted his coaches to go home and get rest to be productive. Uh, but, yeah, Sam was just like, oh, my goodness. And, uh, you know, we worked together, in, uh, you know, when he was at Tampa. You, you knew I would get up and go jogging early in the morning. And I think our first game together was in Tampa, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I think Sam was a head coach. And I got up and started running across the causeway like at 5.36 in the morning. And who's sitting on the rail going through his game plan? Sam White. <laughs> They're in town. And I'm saying, if I stop my dog and I'm talking. But that was him. He just he was up at all times of the day and early morning. And But, uh, yeah, he was just – it was so much fun. And it made football so fun because we could – it was just so many ways to call play. And we'd mess with the defensive linemen. And, you know, they thought we were calling this way. And, it would be this way, and so it was. It was great. I want to. I want to go to the year you make the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, your your team is loaded. I mean, that's a really exciting, fun, up tempo team to watch. A defense had kind of started to come together, and then Anthony, the night before the Super Bowl, Stanley Wilson has a a, a bout with drugs. He disappears, basically. Right. Did what? What yeah. do you remember yeah, he, about hearing about that? Yeah, well, it had a relapse, you know, because if yep. you remember, he had some problems. The guy was amazing. So we had Icky Woods, had a great rookie year. James Brooks, another great, great player, running back. Great and then player. we had Stanley Wilson. Yep. I mean, we had three phenomenal running backs. Stanley Wilson had a few problems during the season, but every time he'd come back, he was, like, amazing. So we go down. We're in downtown Miami the night before we move out to a hotel closer to the stadium. And I'll never forget. So we had dinner. And we usually had our meetings right after dinner, but there was a Super Bowl special going on. And Sam says, guys, go back to your room. You know, give you a chance to watch this Super Bowl special. Pretty good. We'll meet. We'll all get back in the meeting room after, after the Super Bowl special. And then we'll have our meetings. Well, you always know when something's going on. So we all come back after. And if you just feel something's wrong, you know, none of the coaches, all the players are in the, in the meeting room. None of the coaches. And, uh, and it's just like everybody's kind of – I think there was a couple guys that knew because he was rooming with one of them. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's kind of whispering and it's like, what's going on? We're waiting. And, I mean, you talk about being regimented. We start – never were late start meetings, you know, and all of a sudden it goes a little past the time and then Sam comes in. You can tell it, something's going on because he is just – it's almost like he just lost somebody or someone, you know, family member died. And that's when he, he says, and we couldn't find Stanley. And all of a sudden we go back and – knock his door down basically they had to do that and he's smoking crack in his bathtub and it was just like whoa you know you, you the night before the biggest game of your nfl career i mean that's what you work to get to and we're playing in the super bowl that next day and stanley wilson has a relapse 
And I mean, it was like they had just dropped an A-bomb on our team. I mean, it was that whole meeting, man. You just, I know I was just kind of staring into space and, you know, you, you hope that he, he was there to play, but more importantly, his life. I yeah. mean, now he's, you know, he's relapsed. I mean, the guy's back on it and you're just, cause you, Tom, you talk about, one of the most charismatic guys. Yes, I, I remember. I covered that you team. Remember, yeah. I, I do. I remember yeah. it well. He would come in a room and Stanley would just light up the room and, and to know that he's just, you know, that just happened the night before the biggest game in our, in our NFL careers. And uh, so, yeah, we had to, we had to shake that off and get over that and do our final preparation. And, you know, you wake up the next morning and you, First thing you think about is Stanley Wilson. Yep. I mean, what, yep. what's he doing? What, you know, how's he feeling? I mean, it must be, you know. So it's kind of hard to shake that. But yeah, that was uh, that's how I remember it, and uh, it was uh, it was just devastating. You know, it really was. Well, that, that, that's a devastating part from the the human side of life, and then you get to the game. And, you know, you, uh-huh. you, it's back and forth. You, you, you take the lead late. Uh, look, you, you had seen Joe Montana enough in your career. When, when he takes the field, if I'm not mistaken, he's at his own 10-yard line. And it's a final yeah, couple yards, of – He had 92 yards Yeah, 8-yard yeah, line, forgive me. Yards, yeah, yeah. What, what no, are you thinking on that sideline? Well, I'm thinking, you know, because they had moved the ball pretty well, but they only had 13 points. You know, so our defense had, you know, really stopped them when they had to. Uh, you know, my main concern, Jerry Rice was like having the game of his lifetime. So, you know, just kind of try to keep him under control. And I'm thinking we, we got a chance. That's a long way to go. I know it's Joe Montana, you know, and he's a great quarterback. But, you know, our defense was doing okay. I mean, they weren't like, you know, non-existent. So I felt good. I think the one play that really kind of, I said, oh my, I think they had a third and 16 and they got 17 or 18. Jerry Rice broke a tackle. And, and that to me was like, because uh, I mean, last drive, you got a third and 16 and you got to go 92 yards. And I'm thinking we can stop these guys. We get the ball back and we, we can, you know, kneel it and we, you know, yep. we got it. But uh, Jerry Rice breaks the tackle and he gets a first down by one or two yards. And then that was kind of, you know, it. And then, of course, the guy that catches a touchdown, his only catch the game. Right. You're expecting Montana to Rice. You know, Rice has over 200 yards and you expect that to be the, the winning combination. But uh, I'm thinking, who's this John Taylor guy? And he catches it. And so, yeah, it was uh, I really thought we had a chance to stop them. And uh, especially having to go 92 yards. Uh, you know, with maybe three minutes. I don't even know if they had three minutes. It was uh, right at it or just under it or just above it. But, uh, yeah, just kind of helpless sitting there watching them move it down the, the field that last drive. I want to totally shift gears for our last couple of minutes here, Anthony Munoz, and thank you so much for your time and your patience. You know, I, I no. want to shift gears because I know that this is the single most important part of your life. You have always been a man of incredible faith to the Lord. And, and that goes back a very long time in your career. Did, did you ever feel, I, I'm not going to say headwinds, but pushback or, 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 or made to feel uncomfortable? Was You know, you understand what I'm saying here. You get in a football yeah, locker I, room yeah. and testosterone's yeah. going and guys from all over the country and some cases all over the world. And, and all of a sudden, here's this guy that's talking about God, right? Yeah, no. I understand. I, I totally understand what you're saying. And, you know, early on when we first started, 
you know, you, you read off just a whole list of things and asked me, you know, what I was most proud of. And I mentioned Didi. And, uh, you know, back in – this is the 44th year. So April of 78 is when I got married to Didi. And that's, not, that's the biggest decision I'll ever make in my life. But October of that same year, 44 years ago, coming up in October, is when my faith journey started. That's when I, you know, I surrendered my life to Christ. And that's when it all started as a 19-year-old sophomore at USC – and, uh, you know, those last two and a half years were good because we had about six guys that were married. We're all in Bible study. So, you know, the guys you were hanging out with, you know, you, we heard some rumblings about all these Christians and stuff. But the NFL, is, it becomes tougher, you know. But when I first got here, we had a, a core group of guys. And, uh, you know, media doesn't want to hear it. You know, you, you're talking about, you know, your motivation, your preparation, yep. your intensity. And you, they don't want to hear it, you know, because uh, they just don't want to hear it. But you know, the thing I, I tell people, when I first got here, we had a good core group. But at times, you know, and when you talk to a young kids, you have to kind of explain because TV shows I watch may not necessarily been seen by younger people. I said, you, Gilligan's Island, go on the, on the, you know, watch some of these old shows. You know, at times I felt like Gilligan on an island, yeah. you know, but then when you stand strong, you don't compromise and you pray for courage and boldness that being on an island alone all of a sudden gets a little crowded because people start joining you on that island and start not only believing but respecting what how you believe. And I think that's what happens. You really got to just – there's some non-negotiables in your life, and that – and faith to me is a non-negotiable. There should be a lot of things, but that is one thing that I'm very thankful 44 years later that, uh, that Didi and I have been able to surround ourselves with people, like-minded people, accountable, that hold us accountable. And both her and I have been, you know, plugged in church studies and you know, individuals. We hold Bible studies. That's a key. You know, just like when I was playing, weight training and running got me strong be a productive NFL football player, studies and prayer and, and stuff like that keeps you strong uh, and keeps you, you, you know, courageous and bold and, and doesn't, you know, allow you to, to be sucked in because it's, it's easy. None of us are above it. We just have to be aware of it. Uh, and, and I think that's been the key. I tell people 44 years ago, I didn't know a whole lot, don't know a whole lot more now, but I know that we got to stand strong and, and it is my faith, Tom, and you know we we work together. I've known you for a long time. That is the the most important thing. Yep. That is the best decision I've ever made in my life. And to me, that's what's allowed me to come from where I came from. As we talked about my upbringing, the adversity I went through in college with the three knee operations, and then you know being able to stand strong in the NFL and appreciate and be grateful. And as I said earlier. Man, I, I really hit that hard with young people. Don't ever forget where you came from. Don't forget the struggles, the adversity. I said, I've not met a successful person that hasn't gone through adversity, hasn't gone through struggles. It's made, made, them, made us stronger, made everyone stronger. And that's what my faith has been. You know, it hasn't been all, you know, all roses. It's, it's been some ups and downs, but you just gotta, you just gotta fight through it. And, uh, and when you have, when I have someone like Didi, it, it, it's great. And, uh, the support cast, you know, my cast around me. And so, yeah, that is something. And I'm thrilled. I'm very thankful that I can say 44 years ago in October, man, it was the most important decision I made. And, and you're right. You do, you do hear stuff, but, uh, you know what? It's like, okay, people criticizing me, people making fun, people. Then I think about, man, what did Jesus go through yep. when he was crucified? Yep. Man? I mean, he was whipped. He was spat on. He was, I mean, ridic I mean, the guy, and 
people are making fun because I'm a Christian. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's that's nothing compared to what, what he went through for us, for me, for you, for all of us. And uh, so that's, that's what helps me keep things in perspective and just continuing that, you know, my prayer now is Didi and I pray. I say, Lord, just give us courage and boldness to stand on your truth and finish strong. I mean, I'll be 64 years old. Uh, you know, I hope I'm not on 18th hole putting out. I hope I have no, a few heck no, 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 no. You're doing too much uh, other know, stuff. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I just pray that we finish strong. You, you, the last thing I want to ask you about, you started the Anthony Munoz Foundation uh, going back to, I think it was 2002. Um, yep. What, what was the plan initially? When, you know, there are athletes that start foundations, and, and I'll be completely honest with you, and you know it, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, is, is oftentimes they'll start with, with, with plans and then they sort of fade out. Your, your right. thing has right. continued to just grow and yeah. grow. And we have people from all over the country that are listening to this. For those that are in Cincinnati, they know all about it, or at least know something about it. But when you yeah. started that thing, did you have any guess that it would be what it's turned into now? Well, first of all, Tom, so I didn't start the foundation. Two, that was eight years after I retired. So I know the leverage. I know relevance of, of starting a foundation when you're playing. But then I thought about it. I was a husband. I was a father. And I had to perform in the NFL. I didn't have, I want, if I'm going to put my name on something, I want to be totally engaged. So I waited until our kids were like sophomores, juniors in college. I'd been planning, trying to put partners together. I had my mission statement because I wanted to be totally engaged. I wanted to be there and, and learn everything about the non-for-profit. So that's why I started eight years after I retired. We're in our 21st year. And again, the way I was trained is when you do something, do it with all your heart and you know, working for the Lord, not for man. And God wants us to, to do it the best way. And I'm thinking, I want to put the best team together. When I was playing, we went to two Super Bowls. I was on some pretty good teams. Now I'm on a much bigger team. I want to put together a excellent team that's going to have an opportunity to impact a lot of kids. And even though it has my name on it, I mean, it's all about the team, my staff, volunteers, interns, corporate partners. So that's the fun thing for me is that did I know that it was going to grow this big? I didn't, but did I want, I was working towards impacting as many kids as possible. And we just celebrated 20 years last year. And I have to say last year and the beginning of this year, probably the two best years we've had in probably the last seven, eight years coming out of COVID with new, um, with new partners, retaining partners, being able to impact kids with our staff, interns. I have 17 of the most amazing board members engaged. I can call any one of them any time of the day, and I know they'll pick up. If they don't pick up, they'll call back. I can ask for counsel, advice, direction. Um, And it's just one of those things where at my age, a lot of the kids we're working with, when I first meet them, have no clue who I am or what I did. They Hey, there's the furniture guy. You right, know? right, 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 right. <laughs> but when I believe I've been fortunate, I've been blessed to be able to share my story with these kids. And even though I played in the NFL, I'm in the Hall of Fame. They look at me and say, all of a sudden they say, wait, Bengal player, Hall of Famer. But he understands what a lot of us are going through because of how I shared with you my story growing up and mm-hmm. the things I went through. A dad that was in and out of prison when I was growing up. He's dead. I never met him. My mom raised five kids. And they're like, whoa. And that gives me, I think that gives me an instant connection with a lot of the kids, most of the kids that we try to impact 
and builds relationships. And uh, you know, now I can sound more like a granddad to them than a, than a, a friend. So I love that. And uh, so that's what, you know, what the foundation's all about is engaging the tri-state to impact kids mentally, physically, and spiritually. And that's what I love doing is engaging this community. And, you know, I'm the development guy. I go knock on doors and share my passion and my heart with, you know, corporations and try to get their financial support, not only financial support, but try to get volunteers from companies uh, in kind. I mean, you know, just a lot of stuff that cuts down expenses so we can give more of what we raise away. And the thing, the thing that I love is every year when our, our 990, our audit's done, that we're 89 to 91% on the dollar to kids because of the relationships I've been able to establish, uh, being able to get this dinner totally comped and not have to pay for the dinner. And that therefore the money we raise goes straight to the kids. Cause every, we have eight programs. Every kid that goes through a program does not pay a penny. We fund every program. So therefore the kids, if they're coming to a camp, they get the swag, they get three meals a day, we put them up, you know, so if we're giving scholarships, the money just goes directly to the kids. So that's one thing that I, I want to do is give as much money away as possible. And I'm thankful for this community. I mean, you were, you were raised here and uh, I, I mean, I, I transplanted here, but this is home 42 years. So it's a giving community. It's an engaging community. And I love being part. I call it the big team. I love being part of this team here in Cincinnati and uh, especially the foundation. So we're going strong. Uh, we're coming up here this next month. We're giving some more scholarships away. We have an over, we're getting back to our overnight camps, you know, after this COVID yep, craziness. Yep. And kids are just ready to get back and get back to these overnight camps and learn some football, a little bit of football, but do team building activities, rope courses, and, you know, just uh, a lot of character stuff. And so we're, we give all these groups a number of, of camp uh, spots, and, man, they're just eating them up because these kids are ready to get back out. So I'm thankful that we're able to get back in person with a lot of our events with these kids. And like I said, the retention of partners and new partners to allow us to do it has just been phenomenal the last two, three years. And if uh, you would like more information on that, you can go to Munoz, M-U-N-O-Z, Foundation. That's all one word, MunozFoundation.org. Yep. And, Anthony, I, I look, I've kept you a long time here, oh, and, uh, and I – and I cannot thank you enough. Uh, you are, I mean, for a guy, as you said, who's a transplant, to become uh, one of the true pillars uh, of greater Cincinnati and the whole tri-state area and what you've done and Dee has done and your kids have done and grandkids. And it's just been, it's been a blessing to, to having worked with you, to getting to know you, to being around you. And I know I speak for everybody who's done all of those things, one of those things, any of those things. You are a very, very special man. So God bless you my friend and and thank you for your time tom always a pleasure thank you god bless you for uh for just having a chance to chat and get caught up man this is awesome i enjoyed every minute of the family absolutely you too anthony munoz kind enough to join us this week on dialed in with tom brenneman i know you've enjoyed it um the best he is uh, i i can't tell you what 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 this guy is He, he he is the best all right um Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with you next week and take care. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.